two very important designations or titles for Christians uh, are vital if we're going to understand our place in this world. And those two titles are sojourners and exiles. Sojourners and exiles are titles given to us that we really need to understand if we're going to understand how we fit into this world around us. And so we're looking, well, it comes from 1 Peter, uh, but we're looking into this matter a little bit more. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Sojourners and exiles. Uh, we started talking about this last week uh, as we try to grapple with how we fit in. Uh, how do we as Christians fit in to a world that is not filled with Christians? And First Peter talks about suffering, suffering for righteousness, um, dealing with difficulties, wanting to do the right thing. Sometimes things go well for you if you do, other times they don't. And as we finish that book, I thought, I want to go back to those two designations, dig in for a couple weeks, because this is a, I want to say a tricky subject. It's complicated. Uh, Christians have struggled with this ever since there have been Christians. How do we fit in to the larger world around us? On the one extreme, you would have Christendom. Christendom, not as in all Christians, but Christendom as it has been used in the past would be where you've got... Christianity dominating. You've got government together with church, uh, government holding the sword, if you will, as well as the keys to heaven. Okay, that would be Christendom, where the church influences and tells the government what to, what to do, and the government influences and tells the church what to do, because really they're one in and of the same. You'd have a holy empire, if you will. You would have holy emperors. Uh, and there's one take on culture. It's all together. We're all one and the same. And everyone in our kingdom is a Christian if we're these kinds of emperors. Okay? So, and they're Bible verses that they quote. Okay? Select Bible verses. The other extreme would be kind of a total holy huddle isolationism. It's come in different forms at different times. And we want nothing to do with the big bad world outside of our little sphere. So let's all retreat. And there's been all kinds of things in between. I love it that Peter says, remember your sojourners and your exiles, and he's assuming we know something about the Old Testament so that we would know what sojourners were like, what exiles were like. And if you were to ask an Old Testament reader who is the classic, quintessential, exemplar sojourner, I think they would say Abraham. They would say Abraham. He's wandering. He's sojourning. He's not where he wants to be. He's out and about, away from the homeland. In his case, he's away from where? Well, God promises him to the, the promised land, Jerusalem, Israel. He's not there, even though he's a believer, even though he believes in the one true living God. He's not a polytheist. He's a monotheist. He believes in one God, the true God, the creator God. Uh, he believes in justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Romans chapter 4. He believed God and it, God counted it to him as righteousness. So he has good theology. He's a true God worshiper, but he's not where he wants to be. He's not settled in the promised land in Jerusalem. He's a sojourner. 
So he has to think like a believer, but he has to engage unbelievers all of the time. Okay? We looked at that last week. We looked at him last week. So I'm not going to take the time to go to Genesis 12 and to other texts right now. But do know he engaged people around him. He even was rebuked by unbelievers regarding his not-so-great ethics at times. He negotiated with unbelievers. He even entered into covenants with unbelievers, not regarding spiritual things, not compromising his devotion to the one true God, but regarding what we might call common cultural daily activities. Fascinating study. We're not going to redo it all this morning right now. But he's the guy who's called again and again and again and again, sojourner, sojourner, sojourner. So when Peter says to Christians, sojourner, yeah, because we're not in our forever home. This is not heaven. Newsflash. (laughs) This is not the new Jerusalem. We're waiting for the new Jerusalem, but this isn't it. So sort of like Abraham was waiting to get into Jerusalem, we're waiting for the new Jerusalem, like Revelation 21 talks about. In the meantime, we're committed to the one true God, but we're also sojourning, doing kind of ordinary things, and it doesn't only have to be restricted to Christians. So then we move to Daniel, and Daniel is the one great, great prime example of one who would be in exile. So Daniel, remember, uh, Israel is conquered, so now we're going to fast forward, right? So he's, he's in Jerusalem. He, he's an Israelite. And what happens is they're conquered and he's taken as a captive off to Babylon. I'm not sure which way Babylon is from here. So I'm probably pointing, which way is Iowa? Oh, he's in Babylon. I love people from Iowa. <laughs> right? He's, he's taken to Babylon and he doesn't want to be in Babylon. He wants to be in Jerusalem, but he's exiled. While he's there, we know all kinds of stories about Daniel. He's committed to the one true and living God, and he's not going to compromise in any way, shape, or form regarding his theology. What God has said is true about himself, about his responsibilities. He's a no-compromise kind of guy. And yet, he, he engaged. He learned. He was part of. It wasn't holy huddle, don't do anything, go, go, go all out in that sense. And last week we looked at that text in Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a contemporary with Daniel. And Jeremiah talks about, where is that again? Is it 29? A good memory is good and then a less than perfect memory is bad. And I have that. Jeremiah 29.4 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles, that would be Daniel, whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon... Go hide in your holy huddle and don't say anything to anybody. No, it doesn't say that. It says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. And then verse 7 is important. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. That's complicated. He was no Babylon lover. In some ways, Daniel would have been prone to, and I think legitimately, to pray the imprecatory psalms on the heads of the Babylonians. Imprecatory psalms like, curse them, damn them, imprecatory. Because he wants to go back. 
He wants to go back to Jerusalem. He doesn't want to be in exile anymore. But complicatedly, in the short run, praying for the good and flourishing of Babylon. If we're sojourners and exiles, we can learn from those people. How, how, do, how do they do that? What was that like? How do we do that successfully? Uncomfortable, difficult, complicated. And that's how the Christian life is as we wait for the new Jerusalem. Where we didn't go last week, and we're going to go to this week is, this looked very different for the Jews when they were in Jerusalem. When they occupied the land when they were in the promised land. Think in terms of Moses under the Mosaic Covenant where they're there and they have the temple and they have the priesthood. They have a king. Okay, It's a theocracy then, right? They have a king. They have a military. They have government. And so now the two are together. The spiritual uncompromising status and you also have it's a civilization it's actually this 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 again i'm going to use the word theocracy god government together and it looks way different it looks way different how about listen listen to this deuteronomy chapter 7 you're going to go into the land here's what it's going to be like remember abraham entered into covenant covenants with unbelievers listen to these words Deuteronomy 7, verse 2, And when the Lord God gives them over to you, all of the people who are there, and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. Totally different. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. And now, even though they're supposed to be good neighbors, now this new occupation, if you will, affects commercial trade. It affects agriculture, it affects public health, and all kinds of civil matters. It looks very different. They're not sojourners anymore. They're not exiles anymore. They're in Jerusalem. Someday when we are in the new Jerusalem, there will be no compromise. When the king returns and conquers all of his enemies, that's not our job. Everything will be perfect. We'll have a great, awesome, holy huddle. It'll be huge, okay? But it won't have to be a holy huddle because we're out in the open, no suffering, no persecution. But in the meantime, we're kind of like Daniel. We're kind of like Abraham. Sojourners, exiles. Now think again uh, about how this is complicated and how it's not complicated. Most everyone in this room is some kind of fan of the Bible, okay? Omaha Bible Church. I get it, okay? You came to the right place. And we believe the Bible is true at Omaha Bible Church. We believe it's all true. We believe Deuteronomy chapter 7 is true. But if you don't have categories, and if you don't have a bigger understanding of things, what are you going to do with Deuteronomy 7? No covenants with unbelievers. In fact, destroy every last one of them. How's that on your little flip calendar that you have? This isn't that complicated, but it would be really good if we could think clearly about these things. It's all true, but it doesn't all apply to us all of the time the same way, okay? And if you can understand that, you can read the Bible so much easier, and you can understand it so much clearer, and you can be such a better friend to other people, helping them understand the context of things.
when Israel's in its land, no compromise. When they're not, the Israelites are not, no compromise when it comes to who God is and how God works and what His promises are and what He requires of us. And you might take it on the chin for your commitment. Suffering for righteousness' sake. But there's all kinds of compromising. When it comes to other things, like with Daniel, like with Abraham, because they're common kinds of things. They're not redemptive. They're not spiritual in a certain sense. Here's my question for this morning. So, my question is, based upon what? How can I learn, how can I justly say I learn things from unbelievers? How can I honestly, biblically say unbelievers sometimes do things better than believers do? At least at one point in time, we had an unbeliever with better ethics than Abraham calling him on it. We saw that last week. How can can I justify this? And I think we answer that question with two things, a twofold answer, and I want to talk about this this morning, and then I want to talk about why this is so good and helpful and practical, okay? But to answer that question, and those men who were in theology for breakfast, I hope, and we talked about this for a long time. Last week I told you you could do your taxes during the sermon. Uh, Only one person told me that they did. Um, (laughs) I hope you're not really doing that. Um, (laughs) But I hope you can answer this. The first thing we have to remember is the Bible teaches that people are created in God's image. Okay, Genesis chapter 1, people are created in God's image. Genesis chapter 9, even after the fall, they still are created in God's image, even though it's marred, it's corrupted. Okay, So that's the first part of the answer. The second part of the answer is what's called the Noahic covenant. Okay, God's covenant that he made with Noah and all the earth. So if you want to go to Genesis, we're going to dig in a little bit. We doing okay so far? How do we fit in in this world? You know, if I were maybe Constantine, if I want to have a Holy Roman Empire, if I'm doing Christendom kind of stuff, I'm going to make sure I say, hey, Deuteronomy chapter 7. And hopefully you'd say Deuteronomy chapter 7 is true, but it doesn't apply to you. The church, which is made up, by the way, of what nation? Matthew chapter 28, it's made up of all nations. It's different. Image of God, Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Then verse 27, Genesis 1, So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. We all know that. Then sometimes we get a little ahead of ourselves and we think, yeah, but then there's the fall. And then the fall happened and people are dead in trespasses and sins and we would be wrong to go too far and say, and people no longer bear the image of God. That would, not, that would be wrong. People are God's enemies. People are dead in trespasses and sins. But after the fall, people are still recognized as image bearers. We know this because Genesis 9. If you go to Genesis 9, you'll see this is after the fall. And this is why we have 
capital punishment here. This is why, why we have an eye for an eye. Because human life is so valuable because human beings are image bearers. Still. I mean, after Genesis 6 and the pronouncement that's made, it says in chapter 9, verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So, please believe that unbelievers are God's spiritual enemies. Because that's what Romans 5 says. Please believe that they're dead in trespasses and sins because that's what Ephesians 2 says. But please don't jump off the cliff and say they're not image bearers. They are. They are. My friends, this is how you can think sanely. You don't have to be this kind of weird Christian, I got my head under a rock, and somehow I have to pretend like unbelievers can't do anything good. You're just doing mind tricks. Unbelievers do amazing things. Think about the amazing things that unbelievers do, whether it's in leadership, in the military, in the arts, education, astronomy, science. I mean, just the list goes on and on and on. Athletics. Unbelievers do amazing things. And you, if you're a Christian, know why. You have an explanation. You can say, I know, even though that unbeliever is not giving God glory and honoring God as they should be, and that's a sin, you can say, that is an amazing, amazing piece of art. God is amazing to make human beings to be able to do such things. You, uh, pick Richard Dawkins, you know, Mr. Anti-Christian. Brilliant mind used against the people of God and against God, and he will pay for it apart from repentance. But there's no question he's brilliant. And you can say, image bearer. And I could even learn a thing or two from him. Not about spiritual things, Mr. God denier. But man, I can learn a thing or two. You see, you see how it's. It, it, We've got to keep our sanity here and think about this. How, what's our place in this world? We, we have categories to be able to understand things and God has given them to us and so we can make sense of things. I talked to someone the other day and, and I, t- I talked about whether or not they were the best in their field. I'm not going to say who they were because they're probably here and I didn't ask permission. But this person said they're not, they try to do a good job, they try to do their work as unto the Lord, but they're humble, so they said, I'm not the best in my field, but also to say, if I were trying to be the best in my field, I wouldn't be a very good dad, and I wouldn't be a very good church member, and I wouldn't be a very good husband, okay? So I know there are unbelievers, and it costs them their marriage, and it costs them their family, and it costs them everything, because they want to be the very, 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 very best in my field. It's just fascinating to think about for being honest with ourselves, okay? So how do we explain unbelievers doing such amazing things? Image bearers. The other way we can answer it is we can say Noahic covenant, okay? Noahic covenant. The covenant God made with Noah is interesting. Let's go ahead and turn to it if you would. Chapter 8 and chapter 9 of Genesis. The covenant with Noah. Noahic covenant sounds fancy. 
If I was a super weirdo pastor, I would say, turn to your neighbor and say no way at covenant. But I'm not going to do that. I watched a couple sermons the other day, and I was just like, really? Do we really have to do this? Turn to your neighbor and say, the pastor's weird. <laughs> That's what I want to say. It's like, what happens is you've got these super rich pastors who have tons of people coming to their church, and then you just watch all the people who are aping them. And it's so, it's just like embarrassing, you know? So, turn to your neighbor and say, embarrassing. No, <laughs> don't, don't do it. <laughs> I digress. <laughs> Covenant with Noah. Covenant is a formal agreement, okay? A a special kind of relationship because of the formality of it. So in Genesis 8.20, we have this covenant with Noah. Uh, How about verse 22 for the sake of time? While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Okay, so you have this created order is going to be intact and it's going to be intact while the earth remains. Keep that in mind. Okay, as long as things are the way they are now, if we want to read into that until Christ returns and destroys it and recreates it, a la 2 Peter chapter 3, until then, there's going to be a stable kind of created order. Okay, so keep that in mind. While the earth remains. Then drop down to Genesis 9 if you would. Genesis 9, and again for the sake of time, verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. That's going to be everybody. That's going to be universal. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth... Notice every and all, verse 11, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. 13, I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me And the earth, notice big, universal, all-inclusive. 14, when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant. I wrote in my margin next to that, 8.22, as long as the earth remains, he means everlasting. That's what he means by it. He's already told us that. Between God and every living creature and all flesh that is on the earth, God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So notice it's, the scope is all-inclusive. Includes everyone. Okay? He doesn't say, I'm going to take away all suffering and all the effects of the fall. Okay? He doesn't do that. But it's, it's the super broad, big thing, stability back to chapter 8, verse 22. We already saw that. Notice it's not redemptive. Okay? Notice it's not for a select holy people and only for them. We would think like the Abrahamic covenant, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, as well as other things. It's all-inclusive. It's good to know that because here we have a context for 
everyone experiences God's, what we're going to call, common grace. We're mutual participants with everybody. We're called to be holy. We're called to do things different. We're called to understand things. We're called to never compromise when it comes to theology and understanding God. But we do have a common sphere, a common domain. Some people are going to say a common kingdom that we exist in with unbelievers. And we're, we're benefiting from God's stability, God's blessings. One p- person put it this way, probably can put it better than I can. Uh, by this covenant, God ordains that there will be a stable, natural order until the end of the world. It concerns ordinary cultural activities. It embraces the human race in common. It ensures the preservation of the natural and social order. And it is established temporarily. We know it's temporarily because of what Second Peter says, what Revelation says. Christ will return. He will destroy, not with water, but with fire. And he will recreate and make all things new. I'm out of breath. We're sojourners. This is not the New Jerusalem. We're exiles. This is not the New Jerusalem. So while we're called to be holy and separate and distinct, it's not in every way, shape, or form because we're going to engage unbelievers because that's what sojourners and exiles did. And we have a theological covenant, a biblical theological covenant to understand that, and we have the image of God thing to understand that. There will be no compromising in any way, shape, or form or whatsoever in the new Jerusalem, which is kind of like the old Jerusalem, except better. It's the same, except different, (laughs) right? Okay, if you can think in these categories, you won't have all of your problems solved. You won't have all complexities gone from your life but you at least have categories to think through, okay? And, and, and think about how hard it would have been for Daniel to make decisions. It's going to be hard for you to make decisions. How hard it was for Abraham to make decisions. Hard for you to make decisions, not about God, not about eternal life, not, but this other stuff that happens. This other stuff that happens. I've got seven benefits that, that come from understanding things in these terms. So I'm going to give you the seven benefits this morning. Next week is Easter Sunday, and so we'll talk about the resurrection and really focus on the resurrection, and then, Lord willing, we'll start Second Corinthians. And so, but I do want to get this done this morning uh, so we can think in, in right categories. Ready? Seven benefits. Okay, number one, it helps us to understand and apply the Bible. It helps us to understand and apply the Bible. Israel is a holy nation. Israel is a theocracy in the Old Testament. Okay? The church is made up of all nations. It's different. This affords you with categories. All Christians say that we, we, we believe the Bible and we want to take it all seriously, even Deuteronomy 7. Well, I have a category for Deuteronomy 7. I can think clearly, okay, and understand the Bible clearly. The church doesn't have a military because we're not a holy nation, not in any literal sense. 
We have a king who's not here, but we have a king and he will return and he will conquer and he will destroy and judge and recreate. But that's his job. Oh, here's more. It's not our job. There's a lot of talk about redeeming the culture. Well, we've never been called to redeem the culture. That's Christ's job through the gospel. Uh, and so it, it, we've got to think clearly about these things. Oh, another example there would be Romans 13. We have civil government. The government doesn't bear the sword for nothing. Okay? In modern day terms, that shotgun in the officer's squad car is not for decoration. Okay? The government doesn't bear the sword for nothing. Okay? So, legitimate place for civil government, not Christian. Okay? But in Matthew chapter 18, we have... Now we're in the church government, church discipline. We've got civil discipline, legitimate place. Church discipline, legitimate place. But they're distinct, they're different, they're not held by the same entity, if you will. Both are important, both are legitimate. We acknowledge both. It's sometimes complicated, but we acknowledge both of those. There's another example of how these categories help us. Now, if you're in the Old Testament theocracy, Israel occupying its land, its God government, they would have the sword and the keys, if you will. You've got, right? you have the priesthood, you've got the temple, and you also have military might. Does that make any sense? I hope it does. Number two, it helps us. Here's another way that understanding things in the sojourner exile way helps us. It helps us to participate with unbelievers for the good of Babylon. The temporary good of Babylon. You're not wasting your time and you have a category for it. Here I am as, a, as an exile living in Babylon even though my zip code says I live in Elkhorn. It's Babylon. Spiritually, this is Babylon if we're exiles. But now I have a, a grid, I have a category for, you know what, I'm going to work with my unbelieving neighbors for the common good of Babylon, even though it's temporary. It's not a total waste of my time. I know Christians who think it's a total waste of time to do anything in any level whatsoever other than when you gather in your holy huddle. Exiles and sojourners didn't think that way. And so when Peter says be a good sojourner, be a good exile. Let's remember what that would have looked like with Abraham and what it would have looked like for Daniel. Number three, another, thing, another way this helps us, it helps the church to keep its focus. It helps the church to keep its focus. Think about how many good things there are to do in our world. There's so, there are so many good things. The church is called to preach Christ, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We have one string on our guitar and that's all we ever play is the truth about Jesus Christ. Okay? We're not trying to transform the culture as the church. We're not trying to redeem the culture as the church. We know how it ends. Okay? Daniel wasn't called, by the way, to make Babylon into Jerusalem, but I digress, just as a note. We're called to preach Christ. That's our message. That's what we do. That implies we tell people about sin, too, so we could say we preach the law and we preach the gospel. That's what we do. So we have a very narrow focus. That's, that's what you're going to get. You're going to get Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It helps us to know because we have categories. 
Our calling is that. Now, what's interesting is, you, if you're a Christian, are a member of the New Jerusalem. Okay? So you're a part of that. I'm a part of that. But you're also temporarily a member of Babylon. Dual citizenship. So you as an individual participate in both of these things. And I participate in both of these things. Okay? So sometimes you might feel guilty because you see there's a good need that you see in Babylon. And you think, oh man, why doesn't the church fix that? And I want to say, that's for you to do in your Babylonian neighborhood. Okay? (laughs) And you can partner with unbelievers in your Babylonian neighborhood to seek temporary good. Okay? We're going to talk about it in 2 Corinthians. When it comes to spiritual things, we actually can't partner with unbelievers because that's called being unequally yoked. But with categories, I can see the distinction and make sense and say, I can't enter into spiritual things with unbelievers. The church isn't going to do these general good things with all kinds of other religions because we're forbidden from doing so. But I am actually not forbidden from doing so in the common realm. So when you're feeling guilty and it's not something the church is called to do, maybe it would be a good thing for you to do to help Babylon out a little bit. I'm smiling because categories are so helpful. We don't have to get this all reversed and all confused. Just one more thing about three is that's why we try to be real lean okay, in our focus. There's so many things that you need help with because you have so many questions in life, I know because I have so many questions in life, that I purposely don't even want to try to give you the answers to. Because I'm not called to do that. Okay, That's why I jokingly say sometimes, I'm not called to be your life coach. That's not making fun of life coaches. Well, kind of. <laughs> we need wisdom. We need advice. Whether it comes from our parents or our grandparents, aunts and uncles, friends, neighbors, people who are older than us and who've been through it before, younger than us and have been through it before. We, we need help with common things. But the church is not called to proclaim help in common things. It's called to proclaim the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and what He would have us to do as believers. And if the Bible says it, I'm going for it. But as for that other stuff... Ask someone else. And here's the thing. I'm going to give you permission in light of what we're learning about these different categories. I'm going to give you permission to ask someone else. Okay? You want to know? It's it's springtime. Time to clean up your yard. Time to do yard work. Okay? I might go ask my Buddhist neighbor. No, they don't do a very good job with their yard on my street. But I might go ask my... Who knows what kind of unbelieving neighbor, how they do their yard work. And this might seem ridiculous to you. But there are people who would say, you shouldn't do that. Okay, you shouldn't do that. I think I found a website this week called Redeeming Dirt or something like that. I thought, well, I just need to stop. (laughs) How to do Christian gardening. I kid you not. Now, I can give God glory, right? And the unbeliever doesn't do that. But I might actually learn how to do a better job from an unbeliever because I'm in this common Noahic world and they're image bearers and it's okay. But I'm not going to ask them to teach me about how to get to heaven. 
Number four, it helps us to appreciate and benefit from fellow image bearers. We've pretty much already covered that. It helps us to appreciate and benefit from fellow, fellow image bearers without pretending. I talked to someone one time and they were so happy because they had heard and found out that Donald Trump had become a Christian. And so now they had permission, if you will, to vote for him. Because in their mind, they couldn't vote for anyone who was not a Christian. Okay, But remember, regardless of who you're voting for, we're not trying to elect pastor-in-chief. It's not a theocracy. So regardless, I'm not trying to endorse or promote or put down anybody. You're going to try to, you have permission to try to pick the best leader of Babylon. It's Babylon, for heaven's sake. <laughs> okay? But if you don't have these categories, you're going to be very, very confused. Okay? Unbelievers can do amazing things. I don't have to make everyone who does amazing things into Christians. Okay? A lot of people do that, by the way. You read these bi biographies and you'll think, I never knew that person was a Christian. Well, maybe it's because they weren't. Okay? Cultural fundamentalism has a hard time with this, and we don't want to be cultural fundamentalists. Art, art, sports, medicine, nutrition, politics, employment, culinary things. I mean, I made the Gospel Coalition the, my laugh, personal laughing stock when they taught us how to make Christian cupcakes. What? Christian cupcakes? I would be like the Apostle Paul once I became more spiritually mature. You know what? I'd want to send my wife to buy the idol meat. Okay? Right? As long as it didn't violate our conscience, it doesn't sound very ethically, ethically sourced, does it? <laughs> Go buy the cheap meat that's already been sacrificed to idols, honey. Idols are nothing. See? Category. I've got a category. We don't have to go buy Christian ethically raised, Christian farmer, Christian animals as if they're going to heaven too. We all know good dogs go to heaven, but never, never mind, I digress. <laughs> The best food I've ever had that's ever touched my lips, and I'm no culinary expert, but the best, oh, was made by a Hindu. Made in God's image. An enemy of God. But made in God's image. Common member of this common realm with me. I could give God glory. I want him to give God glory too. He came here multiple times. The first time he ever came in here, he walked in the back door. It was scripture reading time. Never been to a church ever before in his life. He walked in. Pat! Pat! <laughs> Most of you probably didn't catch it, but I thought, oh my goodness. <laughs> That's not in my notes, but just... doesn't mean I don't long for him to become a Christian. I do. I'm going to preach Christ to him and did. But I could also benefit from him when he was not a Christian. I've got all kinds more examples, but let's go to number five. Oh, don't look up Christian diet, by the way. I was laughing out loud walking down the hallway this past week at the church. Like, I, I looked up Christian diet. You should see all these things. The, the biggest, most famous Christian diet I ever knew about was by this cult leader lady in Nashville. And she was eventually exposed. And, but I remember my friends in Nashville driving us by her mansion 
driving us by her church, and all of these evangelical Christians who wanted to lose a few pounds, you know, helped build her mansion. False teacher denied the Trinity. Christian diets. Maybe we can go learn about diets from non-Christians. I give you permission to. Common kingdom. Where were we? Number five, it helps us to allow for Christian freedom. It helps us to allow for Christian freedom. I'd like to talk a long time about Christian freedom, and I won't. But the Bible puts a super high price on Christian freedom. You're free from your sins, freed from the penalty of sins, all of these great blessings in Christ like Galatians talks about. You're free to obey Christ in what He says. And then there's this, this special protection. Don't let anyone take your freedom. In other words, if the Bible doesn't say, you can do whatever you want to do. Okay? Freedom. People tell you it's this day, it's this diet, it's this kind of education, it's this kind of art, it's this kind of that. And remember, as soon as we put the name Christian on something, if we really mean it, then to do otherwise would be what? A sin. A sin. So I might be, be a, being a little bit over-literalistic here, but if I say, this is how Christians do blank. If the Bible doesn't say, here's how Christians must do, you fill in the blank, then it's legalism. Okay? You're free. You're free. There's all these things the Bible doesn't talk about. And oftentimes, unbelievers do them better than we do. And you have a category that gives you permission to say, I can appreciate that instead of making a Christian way to do what there isn't a Christian way to do. Number six, it helps us to remember that this is not the New Jerusalem. It helps us to remember this is not the New Jerusalem. I love, oh, we're not going to take the time because we're running out of time, but Second Peter chapter 3, the return of Christ in verse 11 and then it says in 3, it's set on fire, dissolved, burn. 13, but according to His promise, we are awaiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We're waiting for that. This is not it. And in Revelation chapter 21, it says, Behold, I am making all things new. And He's talking about the new Jerusalem that will come. We won't be sojourners. We won't be exiles. And there will be no compromising, no complications. Number seven, finally, it helps us to see our need for prayerful wisdom. How do I do this? I'm a Christian. I want to honor Christ. Got to pray for wisdom. Well, how do I figure this out? Well, the Bible doesn't say. Got to pray for wisdom. And maybe seek wisdom. And you could seek wisdom from unbelievers and you could seek wisdom from believers. If it's a common realm kind of activity, Christians don't have a lobby on the market. It's going to make you pray. Think about how Daniel would have had to pray and did pray. Hard to live in Babylon. Hard to not be in Jerusalem. We can pray amidst the complication of things. Pastor, how do I figure out how, to, how much time I should spend with Christians and how much time I should spend with non-Christians? Well, let me tell you. Pray about it. <laughs> Right? One is going to last forever, so I, I'm going to pay a lot of attention to this community, no doubt about it. 
but I'm going to avoid the holy huddle because I am a sojourner and I am an exile. So how do you split your time? Not going to tell you. Pray for wisdom. And there's different seasons in life and things change. And as soon as I tell you, here's the percentage of your time, I just robbed you of your freedom and maybe robbed you of some good prayer time. God, it's so hard to live this life because I have this job and, and, and this boss and I, I, I want to work as unto the Lord. And so I want to do that well. What about this decision? What about my kids? What about education? How does this work? How does this look? It's hard. I don't think you'll struggle with any of those things in the New Jerusalem. You'll be glorified, but you're not yet. You're not yet. If this sounds complicated, I didn't mean for it to be. I don't think it has to be complicated. I don't think it is complicated. But it is when you listen to people who tell you, and I hate to say this because I oversay it, but it's so popular because I keep seeing the books and there's more books. This is very confusing if your paradigm is your best life now. Okay? I won't say it again for a long time. But that's how Christians think. No, it's not. You're a sojourner and an exile. And you're waiting for His glorious return where He makes all things new. Then life is going to be easy. In the meantime, have fun. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, thank You for this morning. Thank You for time together. Thank You for believers who've gone before us whether it be our parents or grandparents or great-grandparents or even just parents in the faith who've helped us to think through some of these issues, help us to get better at it so that we might honor you and glorify you in our various callings where we function in life. We're grateful that you're a merciful God and that you have promised to come again and to make all things new, and we're grateful to have that promise in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.